Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Ebooks in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Juan Pablo Pardo Guerrera about his fantastic new book, Automating Finance. Juan Pablo is a social assistant professor at UC San Diego, and he's been working on questions of finance and financial markets for a very long time. And I guess this book represents uh, the culmination of uh, a very long-standing research uh, agenda and research project. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so very much for the opportunity. I mean, I mentioned uh, that this is a sort of long-standing interest. It'd be good to, to hear a bit about where it, uh, I guess, kind of fits in with your intellectual trajectory, because you've been writing and researching this stuff for a very long time. Yes, well, um, I think it fits in via my, my interest on markets. Um, what really fascinates me is this centrality that markets play in contemporary societies, And I've explored that by looking at both um, financial markets, as in this book, where I really focus more on technical aspects of the devices and technologies that animate and enable uh, people in finance to do uh, the things that make finance so esoteric and and powerful. Uh, But I've also looked at art markets, and more recently I moved into forms of quantification that are very market-like and that affect academic labor markets. So I'm interested in markets, and I think that that's one of the uh, inspirations behind this book, because it's really a story of how markets get built and how they change and how they adapt and how they um, are modulated by a number of actors that are often unseen, often unthought of, and ignored. It's interesting because you're in a territory uh, in terms of the world of finance that's seen quite a lot of popular interest. Uh, and indeed, actually, the popular interest is, you know, has had Hollywood films made about it and, uh, you know, pe- people like Michael Lewis's work, whether in The Big Short or uh, things like Flash Boys, uh, the, the book... But you offer, I guess, a kind of, not a critique of that popular narrative, but a different focus, which, as you've gestured towards already, is around questions of kind of how markets get built, what kind of infrastructure um, allows them to to occur and to function. And I'm interested in how that focus gives a sort of a different perspective and, and how... Um, as I say, maybe not to be critical of the popular narratives, but how you present something different from those popular approaches. So, yeah, that's, that's really the, the crux of the book. So one of the classical things or one of the things that is quite common uh, when people study markets is focusing on the agents that are at the center of action in the sense that um, they, they tend to study people who are either traders or floor managers or financiers who seem to hold power via their control of capital. And that's true. Certainly, those are very powerful agents, uh, financiers, investors, fund managers. 
all those actors hold tremendous power in contemporary societies. Uh, they sort of change the ways we think about um, labor. They change the way organizations think about themselves. They have this tremendous uh, power of transforming cultural modes, uh, cultural forms, as well as uh, of mobilizing capital. But those are not the only actors that matter for the, the story of how markets get made. At the end of the day, markets require all these things, these very mundane physical things in order to operate. And the way those objects, the way those devices are designed um, has consequences on how markets work. Um, if a market is built on a device that requires or makes speed something profitable, then the market will then evolve into this arms-like race um, of, of going for faster speeds, lower latencies, more powerful processors, etc., etc. If a market is based on visibility as in a trading floor, then the ways of trading will be centered around how bodies behave in that particular space, around the idea of visibility, around the idea of communicating with others, signaling things, et cetera, et cetera. So the making of these devices, the making of these infrastructures matters uh, fundamentally. And that's what, that's what I was exploring in this book, how those infrastructures get made, who are the individuals that are often unseen, often un unthought of and unaccounted for, that end up shaping the market from beneath. The other thing that uh, I think is, is particularly interesting and, and is another contrast to where the literature is uh, at the moment is the very uh, sort of longer historical context you're interested in. And, and early on in the book, you, you kind of stake out a territory that says we shouldn't be thinking of automation as just a question of let's compare say the late 1970s with now but actually we should think about what it was to do financial markets um over a series of, of sort of different eras and, and one really you know obvious example comes quite early which is how do you actually buy stocks you know how did you do that in 1940 and, and how did you do it sort of how would you do it uh, now and what are the similarities and differences yeah. So, so actually, a lot of the things—that's that's another interesting thing about the story—that that structurally, um, automation hasn't changed a lot of things in terms of the process of buying stocks and shares. Um, so you need shares, you need some intermediary and a marketplace at the end of the day, and a way of settling the transactions, which is a crucial element of the of the process. Those four things remain today. The thing is that in the past, they used to require much more um, sort of interactional work between the customers, the investors, and multiple intermediaries that led all the way to the marketplace and then were followed by settlement, which settlement is just the act of matching the trades in the market and making sure that uh, the money is paid for the shares that were exchanged. Um, so all those things existed in the past, but again, they were much more um, dependent on the work of, of individuals who were uh, very classed, who had a specific um, 
notion of what, how you would sort of communicate information through social networks, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's much more electronic, anonymous. Even though structurally it's the same, what has happened during this process is that markets have become more popular. So more people invest in the stock market. Uh, that's in part because the pressure to invest in the stock market as a way of protecting or hedging future risks because of smaller welfare states and more uncertain futures has grown tremendously over the last 60, 70 years. Um, and it, but it's also because of the mechanisms that are in the market. They're built for anonymity. They're built for investors who are walking down the street, open an app on their phones and trade 500 shares in whatever on their uh, E-Trade app or their sort of Royal Bank of Scotland app or whatnot. So that's that was the fundamental change. And a lot of that was facilitated by these techies, by these market engineers, as I call them that were working in the background trying to change the way people operated on the floor. It wasn't something necessarily pushed for by the managers, by the owners of capital, by the owners of the industry. Uh, it was rather pushed by the people working in the basements, alcoves, and closets of a lot of these organizations that make finance. I mean, you mentioned actually really usefully a set of um what you might think of as kind of architectural metaphors you know <laughs> basements closets um yeah. floors this kind of stuff and um, and i was very struck actually by i think it might be in the in the third chapter of the book where you talk about the shift uh in one of your case studies from the floor to the screen so you use the london stock exchange uh for a, sort of a variety of of, of reasons but but one of the things you, you try and do is is to chart this shift from um, a particular set of technologies, which includes the very architecture of the space for trading, to um, a different kind of set of technologies, which have equally kind of broad, um, I suppose, understandings of tech. You know, it, it's it's not just having computer programs, but it also is to do with with spaces. And again, you know, if if we thought about how trading is very different in terms of um, app-based stock buying versus, you know, kind of actual trading. What about the sort of um, those technologies of um, architecture, of kinship, of sociality that moved us from from floor to screen in in the London Stock Exchange? So so I think that those technologies matter because precisely of the term that you mentioned, which is which is the wacky part of the book. So one of the one of the things that I try to do is also think of markets as sites where relations get made. Um, and that's that's in large measure because of um, the work of previous scholars like Viviana Saliser, who uh, is critical in in economic sociology and showing how economic interactions and relations are sort of co-constructed. But also via the work of economic anthropologists who think of markets in a sort of rather distinct, again, denser way. And what I was trying to do is think of these architectures as devices, technologies, things, objects that enable relations to happen in certain ways. 
And I think it is it is in chapter three where I look at how these devices were changing in part with the expansion of the organization. So to explain that in a slightly better way, in the old stock exchange, the old London Stock Exchange, you had effectively a brotherhood of, of type. Uh, you had a bunch of folks um, that knew each other. They had sort of sporting clubs. They have they had art clubs, choirs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that that were part of this really dense, rich community. It was very fraternal. It was very familiar in terms of how they experienced everyday life, how ex- they experienced their own individual lives outside of the market, but also how they made the market possible. And that sense of family was something that was disrupted as the organization started adding new types of people to the family. And that came with a change in the in the architectures of the market. Those people were based in basements. They were based in spaces that were invisible for those performing the market every day. And nonetheless, by expanding the organization in those ways, they were sort of expanding the types of members of the family in a sense that that allowed the market to take on these new forms, allowed the market to move on to technologies that would have been quite foreign, like the screen, and adopted them as something familiar. Um, It's sort of like buying the first microwave for a family. It seems like something that comes from a very peculiar uh, universe, but over time, it becomes part of the family in a sense. It becomes part of the routines, part of the expectations of everyday behavior. Uh, And that's sort of what happens with this metaphor of thinking about markets as, as sites of kinship, as sites of relation making, that when you think of them in those terms, the people who end up shifting those relations are not only those in the market, it's not only about traders, but it's also about the folks who determine what technologies are used in order to create relations. And that's where this metaphor of uh, these architectural metaphors and references are very useful. I don't know. Does that does that sort of make sense? It, it prompts, um, I guess, a really kind of basic practical question of, could you give me an example of, of how this works? And the really obvious one is the way prices were visualized. Um, and actually kind of the visualization, you know, how to kind of show how much something costs is absolutely yeah. crucial to that front end of the book. Yeah. So, well, one of, one of the things that one of the nice stories is about the first price visualization system in, in London. And uh, people on the floor were not initially too receptive of visualization systems because they threatened the floor. So people understood very early on, this is the 1950s, 1960s, that if you transmitted prices off the floor, that was a threat to the survival of the floor, not only because uh, it allowed people to see prices outside of the physical marketplace, but it also reduced the income for the organization that owned the marketplace, the stock exchange, uh, because people didn't have to pay for sort of access to the to the floor for their membership. So 
it was very early on recognized as something that was problematic. Uh, but what what is interesting is that the the techies, when they joined the exchange in the 1960s, and they found that a couple of firms were doing these very ad hoc price visualization systems that consisted of a guy in a top hat writing down prices that were collected by the clerks of his firm from the trading floor on a whiteboard and then videotaping that or taping that and relaying the image to the offices of his firm. So really primitive. It's essentially like a a sort of recording of a whiteboard and someone changing prices on a whiteboard. When they recognized that, and they also recognized that the stock exchange had invested in all these fancy new technologies for settlement, so for a very obscure back office operation, they sort of thought about the possibilities of building a system that would allow for those prices to travel without necessarily changing the way people in the stock exchange made markets. So they they introduced this innovation that made sense in the context of how people behaved on this on in the marketplace but simultaneously uh, changed radically the way information traveled outside of the marketplace without anyone necessarily noting it and one of the tricks that they did for that they they were full of tricks i mean they were very sort of clever sociologically in a sense because they were very observant of the things that made sense for the community of the stock exchange for the members of the stock exchange and one of the things that they did was build the system with conventional TV screens or TV sets because with those they could allow traders or brokers to tune out of the market and tune into cricket games. (laughs) And this is something that made those screens in the offices of brokers and made those screens on the floor much less threatening because they suddenly became part of the sort of forms of entertainment that people at the stock exchange already enjoyed. They became these convenient devices rather than these threats. Uh, And they were extremely successful because this ability to create an object that was somewhat market-like and revolutionary, but at the same time very conventional and not too much of a threat to social relations, allowed those devices to be adopted all over the place. And Soon, soon enough, the, the system called Market Price Display Service became the most popular uh, service offered by the stock exchange. Uh, then there was pressure to expand it that allowed these technical groups to grow in numbers by more sophisticated equipment, tinker, experiment more, etc., etc., and it gave them this power to grow uh, without necessarily being controlled. Uh, by the the exchange, so so that's that's this that that's a, a critical part of the story. That at every single point in time, when they were thinking about innovations, these weren't um, innovations that meant to destroy the fabric of the marketplace. They were innovations that incrementally tried to accommodate the way relations were made, the way markets operated, but that in the long run did disrupt things. I mean, it, it's worth kind of noting at this point, um, uh, before we sort of 
move forward slightly in the story that you, you also get to grips with the regulatory environment, uh, particularly certain moments of Britain uh, in the 1980s and how finance was kind of, um, I suppose, reordering and reordered within uh, the British economic system. But you, you kind of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you, you sort of make a judgment about uh, what you call the market engineers, mm-hmm. both in terms of their kind of success in uh, transforming the LSE and the British system, but also how the kind of their limits sort of mark an end to the, I guess, the kind of the British bit of our story. And, and one thing I, I was really struck by um, was you adopt this kind of interesting sort of um, fantastical or, or religious language about them, about how they became, you know, prophets with these kind of like uh, magical futures for for trading, which seemingly would be the kind of the moment for their triumph, but also actually marks a bit of the kind of limits of their their influence. Yeah, yeah. So that I so so that, that's that's part of the. So that, that, I think that that's something I didn't make too explicit in the book, which is that. One of the features of the London, the London Stock Exchange, and actually of most exchanges up to the 1980s, was their relative isolation. That I think one of my respondents said this at some point that it was very provincial. At the end of the day, there was the London Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, the sort of Paris Bourse, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they all tended up to the 1980s or catered to very local markets to some extent. Um, so the, the techies in each of these weren't really competing at, on a global scale. What happened with LSE after the 80s, so there was this great regulatory moment in the 80s, this tremendous shift where the London Stock Exchange was forced to internationalize, to accept foreigners in its membership, to accept banks as members of the exchange, to effectively become the type of financialized exchange and organization that we we know today. When that happened, it was also forced to compete on a much more international arena. And I think that the techies, when that happened, um, found it slightly more difficult. And that's why they that's why they start to disappear from the story at that point. Because the story of market technologies from the 1990s, let's say the mid-1990s onwards, starts to become dominated by designs rather than individuals. Uh, That's when the type of devices that were driving how transactions were taking place starts to become more prominent than the small teams of individuals that were building organizations and markets at the same time within these local stock exchanges. Um, and yeah, I think that that's part of it. That's because it becomes much more internationalized and globalized and, and they, they lose their prominence in the field, even though they were quite prominent. I mean, people knew about these technologists all over the place, at least the leaders. Um, the Americans knew about the British, the French knew about the Americans and the British, etc., etc. It was a global community, but 
by the 1990s, they start to lose some of the centrality because the story becomes much more global and complicated. I mean, you, you sort of do that in, in two ways. One is with a, a kind of detailed in, in engagements uh, with a concrete example, and, and the other is by considering sort of systems of, of, uh, of, of markets in the States. And maybe we'll take both of them in turn. The, the first thing is, is this uh, example um, of, of order books where you, you do, you know, a sort of um, a kind of analysis of the object of the order book, thinking about um, how these seemingly kind of, you know, mundane market devices, maybe like, you know, you, you write really kind of interestingly and, and compellingly about them, but they they do seem like they're quite sort of like boring technologies, if, if that makes sense, um, yeah. actually have a range of sort of practices embedded into them. Um, they make things possible. They stop other things. You know, they have kind of assumptions about particular kinds of behavior around, you know, making markets efficient or, um, prompting particular kinds of gentlemanly or, you know, sort of otherwise behavior. Um, and, and I'm interested in the, in the order book as a, I suppose, maybe a way of continuing that story of the shift from individuals who are, you know, almost in control of systems to broader objects that are making these complex and, you know, post-individual systems possible. Yeah, so actually, I'm going to connect that to the, the previous conversation about the, the sort of end of this uh, British story. So I think that that end has to do with the order book. So the end happens precisely when the stock exchange has to move onto an electronic limit order book, which is a list of the orders to buy and sell shares that investors submit that is matched automatically rather than by, by humans. Um, sitting at a desk or or on the floor. So these lists, these electronic lists are incredibly powerful because they allow transactions to be very anonymous uh, and very fast. And they reconfigured the way people traded from the 1990s to the present. And I think that the end of the British story has to do a lot with the growth of these order books. So these techies were very involved in the development of one of the first British order books. Uh, but that's they were also uh, responsible for shifting the London Stock Exchange to adopt an order book rather than the more sort of quote driven markets where you had brokers calling dealers over the phone and resolving things over the phone um, that they had before. So this shift forced the LSE to take an order book that was not optimal. And the LSE actually disappears from the story of global finance for a bit. So it drops from the sort of highest echelons of finance, quite a few um, ranks, because it adopted a terrible object, a terrible technology. And and so that's why the, the story ended um, there. But that was, that was, again, an opportunity to talk about this order book as something that does encode all these different ways and expectations of 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 making markets. And one of those has to do with the very origins of the, the order book, which is that they were introduced as attempts to make markets fairer, uh, sort of more efficient, not in some respect, but also more just. And this idea of more just was connected by some. There's like this wacky character 
from from the United States who has the first patent for for an electronic order book. And it's fascinating because he connected it to Calvinist notions of brotherly love that were mixed with uh, neo-Austrian economic theory that he tried to mix also with some observations he had about Max Weber's work on Protestants. It's like a completely insane thing. And they were all embedded, they were all encoded into this, the way he designed the device. Um, but all the other versions of the order book that followed also attempted to do the same thing. They were attempts to build forms of fair finance, of just finance, uh, for markets that weren't the traditional markets or users that weren't the traditional users of financial markets. Um, and this has happened all the way till today. So one of the appeals of, of Flash Boys, for example, is precisely that, that it's a story of justice. It's a story of a team of individuals who are fighting against a rigged, unjust system by building something that is presented as being a better, morally superior um, solution to how markets occur. And that really has been the story of much of finance since the 1960s. It's this attempt to build devices that somehow embed ideas of better ways, more fair ways of doing things in the market and in finance, even though at the end of the day, they all tend to be quite similar and have the same sort of effects and consequences. I'm quite interested in, in the sort of bad behavior they enable as well. Like, you, you know, yeah. you, you sort of unpick the, the, the flip side to this, which is, well, actually, they, they make, you know, kind of like highly unethical and unjust practices possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so of course, you can use them for, for activities or for behaviors that, that are unjust or just borderline illegal. Um, so one of them is this, this idea of spoofing, for example, which is, and layering, which are very popular or have been very popular in the last couple of years in, in the press or in accounts about financial markets where what people do essentially is submit fake bids and fake asks to the order book to make it look as if there is more activity than there actually is to fool the algorithms that are reading the order book. And in fooling those algorithms, make a couple of cents on each transaction. And with enough transactions, those couple of cents can become uh, sizable amounts of money. So that's something that, for example, is enabled by order books. Um, they also enable forms of more opaque transactions because transactions now occur not in one single marketplace but distributed across numerous marketplaces at the same time um, so if you're buying or selling large amounts of shares you don't just go to one stock exchange you break up those lots into smaller lots and send them distribute them across the world to wherever there is uh, adequate prices. So that makes tracking things a little bit more compli complicated. It makes the system a little bit more opaque. Uh, it also introduces questions of latency, of course. Uh, if you're faster at arriving at the servers that have these order books 
and the engines that match the trades on these order books, then you're at an advantage. And for some, that's borderline illegal. For others, it's just simply the name of the game. But in any case, it is a, an asymmetry that persists in how the market works, even though, as I sort of also insist in the book, that asymmetry existed way before. Um, markets have always had these issues. Uh, and that before order books, there were forms of behavior on the floor that were very similar to spoofing and to layering, but that weren't seen as being as morally objectionable, that were actually ways of creating community in a way by by sort of playing tricks or pranks on people on the floor. Uh, of course, that's very difficult if you're in an anonymous environment, because if you play a prank on someone you don't know, that's probably not a prank. That's probably something illegal. So that was a, a that's another sort of change in the in the story of order uh, of finance that anonymity introduced and changed the way things are interpreted by the marketplace. And a lot of that has to do with with order books and and how they operate. I mean, one of the problems always talking about um, a sort of STS informed take on the you know unbelievable complexity of the world we live in, and you know the sort of the the way that. C- order is, is produced by all different kinds of um, historical antecedents and devices, practices mm. coming together is we make the story seem really neat. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, we, we, we kind of tell a story of, you know, latency uh, comes up at the start of the book and it comes up in the end. And, you know, there's a sort of a starting point and a finishing point. But I, I sort of you know, raised that slightly uh, kind of flippant point to, to stress that the book has got all kinds of things going on in it much more kind of you know over and beyond what what we've been talking about um and i think one of the things the book does do sort of consistently in whatever um particular case study or or, or moment that it's discussing is tries to engage with the kind of the question about what does this mean for contemporary capitalism and and where we are now and 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 i think that would be a good place to to sort of conclude uh the book really to get a sense of I guess what does this story of of um, automating finance tell us about where we are now? So I think that there's a couple of things. One is that um, it's good to look at the invisible actors that are driving capitalism, for example. So there are like three three takeaways. One is it's important to look at those that are often not analyzed because they're seen as being irrelevant or secondary to what is driving capitalism. Um, and and that's, that's important because looking at how people are building the infrastructures of capitalism allows us to understand the sort of logics of capitalism in a slightly different way, but also points of intervention for capitalism. So it's great that we focus on what is going on in sort of high finance by looking at, for example, hedge funds and the way sort of there's a politics of finance that is affecting uh, every single aspect of our lives. But it's also important, important to think about how that is piggybacking on top of developments in IT, 
how uh, the way technology has evolved is intricately related to the way finance is thinking about itself now and in the future, and how maybe those are also points of intervention and reform for financial markets. So that's one thing, looking at the invisible, looking at these boring things that matter fundamentally, because at the end of the day, the world is built on a lot of boring things. Uh, the second one has to do with thinking also of markets as these these entities that aren't good or bad. They have um, a they acquire very different uh, sort of moral balances depending on how they're operationalized, how they're used, how they're implemented. So one of the things that I think is is important in the book is showing this shift between this ambivalence of markets, of markets as neither good nor bad, as objects that are built, institutions that are maintained, organizations that have multiple sort of constituencies and that have to be created, reinvented, et cetera, et cetera, over time. So looking at that is important because it allows us to think of the type of markets we want to build for the future. We we need markets. Markets are good. They do things that are great. They also do terrible things. They also have very negative effects on our lives and our futures. But striking this balance in how markets should be built is something that that, that sort of matters. Um, by looking at examples like finance, how can we build a better financial system? How can we build a better stock exchange? And there's an amazing podcast by Philip Roscoe on this. So this this is another thing that that I think is is important. It's thinking about markets as having multiple balances rather than just being good or bad. And that's important because it challenges a lot of our instincts, at least as social scientists and 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 at least at a first point of contact. And the third is is how this history of automation is really a history of transformations in society. So um, there's this idea that financial markets matter because they are indicators of more profound transformations in the world. And I think that one of them is is how financial markets uh, have transformed the, the interactional experience of people in their settings uh, fundamentally from being these face-to-face interactions to now being essentially digital transactions captured in electronic queues. And this shift from um, the face-to-face interaction to the queue is something that I think is very revealing because it's not only, it's not unique to finance. It's something that is happening everywhere markets and everywhere relations are digitized. It's a central feature of how automation is occurring today, where things that used to be more asymmetrical and uh, asynchronous are now taking to the logic of computers, of bytes, of, of sort of information that is enqueued and processed in a linear way and valued in that manner. And I think that finance allows us to think a little bit about those forms of enqueuing uh, that are operating 
in numerous domains and how they might affect the future. Um, among that, by changing the things that are valuable. Speed used to be valuable in finance for very different reasons. And today it's valuable because finance is essentially a bet on where your position is in a queue. I mean, that's a whole load of possible research projects. Yeah. Are you going to be pursuing any or all of them? Or um, are you at that moment in a kind of like longstanding um, research interest where you think it's time for me well, to do something else? So actually, the enqueuing thing is something that I find really interesting because it, it, it speaks to the literature on, on rankings and this literature on quantification, and I'm starting to get more interested in how these forms of organizing value in, in lines and queues and lists, lists have effects on the world. And one of the, the new projects on that has to do with uh, the research assessment exercise, uh, research excellence framework, uh, and studying how this as an infrastructure has affected the way knowledge is produced in the United Kingdom. So it has nothing to do with financial markets, but it does have to do with these modes of enqueuing that, that matter to finance in a way. There are very different ways of enqueuing than those that you would find in, in, in the stock market, but there are forms of enqueuing that change the way people value themselves, the way people understand their disciplines, the, the way people understand what is relevant uh, for their fields, for their colleagues, for students, et cetera, et cetera. And this is my new sort of line of, my new direction. It's sort of taking this idea of enqueuing and quantification and looking at what happens when that occurs in something like the social sciences in Britain.